0: Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Acts chapter uh, 17, and uh, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, that's okay, but uh, really the question, the heart of what I shared last week uh, in the message was, I asked you a question, and the question was just simply this, is it reasonable to believe in Jesus? Is it reasonable to believe in Jesus and to believe in the gospel and the gospel message? Uh, One of the things that I just respect so much about the Apostle Paul is he didn't go from town to town, community to community, and say, hey, just believe these things because I'm telling you to believe these things. Uh, He challenged people to examine the evidence, consider he reasoned with people, and he wanted them to believe, uh, not because he told them to believe, but because they've considered these things. Uh, And the conclusion that they had come to was it is reasonable to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and what Jesus did, he did for me. Um, So the question we really wrestled with last week is, is it reasonable to believe in Jesus and the gospel? Today, this is kind of part two, but I wanted us to wrestle with a follow-up question, and the question would be this. If the gospel is reasonable, it is reasonable to believe these things, then how might my life reflect that the gospel is a reasonable gospel? Like, if I would declare that It is reasonable to believe that Jesus is Jesus. He's the son of God, and that through faith in him, my sins are forgiven. I can have a relationship with God both now and forever. If that is reasonable for you to believe that, then the question is, how might my life reflect that the gospel is a reasonable gospel? In other words, how should what I believe about Jesus influence and impact how I live and engage the world around me? It's another way to to ask that question. What does it look like, practically speaking? Uh, Chuck Colson uh, wrote a great book, and in it he said this, "...our calling is not only to order our own lives by divine principles, but also to engage the world. Our calling is not only to order our own lives by divine principles, but also to engage the world. However, uh, to engage the world, however, requires that we understand the great ideas that compete for people's minds and hearts." I love what he says at the very beginning. Our calling is not only to order our lives uh, by what God has for us, but to engage, to engage the men, the women, kids, the lives of those that are around us. Now, this is a very general statement, okay? This is not for every single person, every single Christian, but a general statement and observation that I would make is I think what happens a lot in the church is that we get so focused on seeking to fix what's broken within us that we ignore engaging what's broken around us. That we just, we look in the mirror a lot. And we just, I've got this issue, I've got this hurt, I've got this pain, I've got this disappointment, this discouragement. And we get focused on, Jesus, what can you do for me? That we completely forget about the, the hurts and the needs of the world around us. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus meets us where we are. And in many ways, Jesus heals us so that we can become healers. Um, So again, that's a a general observation. uh, And as I've been studying Acts for the past year and a half, uh, one of my big takeaways uh, of what we've studied thus far in the storyline of Acts uh, is simply this. God wants ordinary people like us to see an extraordinary God do extraordinary things Through us, so that more people might come to know this extraordinary God. That's my clever way of trying to say God wants to use you. He wants to use you to make a difference in the world around you. And just make it more personal. He wants to use you to make a difference in your home, in your apartment, in your dorm. He wants to use you to make a difference in your place of employment, your community, the men and women that you are around. I am convinced, after reading the storyline of Acts up to this point, uh, that God takes an ordinary person like myself uh, and ordinary people like us, and he wants to use us so that we can see an extraordinary God do extraordinary things with us and through us. Um, If you currently believe that the gospel is reasonable, so I'm speaking directly to Christians, if you've made that decision that, hey, this makes sense, I've wrestled, it's, it's reasonable for me to believe what I believe. Uh, this question is directed for you. If you currently believe the reasonable gospel, then how is it practically playing out in how you live and engage the culture around you? Culture meaning people. So if you declare it's reasonable, how is it showing up in how you live and operate every single day? What difference do you see the gospel making in how you live and how you engage Uh, those that are around you. Now, I don't know if you would agree with this, but one of the things that I love about being a Christian, uh, I am never bored. I am never bored. And I say that not because I've got some like really long to-do list. I say that because I'm convinced that every person I meet or talk with, it's a God-ordained moment. So every moment, every opportunity, every conversation, every situation that I meet, whether it's I'm meeting with someone for the hundredth time, or I'm meeting with someone for absolutely the very first time, uh, I'm expecting God to do something. And when you walk around expecting God to do something, life is a lot more interesting. And so for me as a Christian, I'm not bored. And I, I honestly, I haven't been bored in a long time. Knowing that God wants to do something with me and through me changes every aspect of my day. It changes every aspect of conversation, people that I'm connecting with because I go into it with a mindset, what's God going to do in this restaurant? What's God going to do in this store? What's God going to do in this conversation? What might God do wherever I might be? And it makes it a lot more interesting to live like that. And I think um, as I consider the apostle Paul, I don't think he was bored. I see a man who was convinced that the gospel was reasonable And it radically transformed him as a man, and it reshaped how he engaged everyone around him. Absolutely just changed him, but it it transformed how he engaged the men and women around him. Uh, This morning, uh, if you're already in Acts 17, we're picking up on the story uh, of Paul was in Thessalonica. Uh, He taught who Jesus was, um, and the people, some people received it. Uh, but then there was a mob that formed that forced him to get out of town because there was a lot of people who rejected and said, we don't want you and we don't want this message in our city. So he went from Thessalonica uh, to Berea. Uh, and similar situation happened in Berea. He was in Berea. There was a lot of men and women, uh, some who came to receive and accept, and it was reasonable to them. But then the crowd that formed a mob in Thessalonica traveled about 50 miles uh, to Berea And formed another mob and forced the Apostle Paul to leave Berea also. And that's where we kind of pick up the story here. Uh, And this is just reading a few verses in Acts 17, uh, verse 14 and 15. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. So they said, Paul, you got to get out of here. You have to leave because your life is in jeopardy. And then verse 15 Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So Paul is by himself. Uh, From Berea to Athens is about 200 miles down the coast traveling south. So he's got some folks who took him down there, but then he gave them the message, hey, go get Timothy, go get Silas, and bring them back uh, to where I am in Athens. Now, if you're not familiar with Athens, uh, that's okay. I I think you would be familiar with people like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. Uh, Athens was known as the cultural epicenter, so to speak, of all things philosophical, art, architecture. Uh, There was so much that had happened and was happening in the city of Athens, and this is now where the Apostle Paul finds himself. Uh, Athens at this point in time was kind of past its heyday, uh, but it was still uh, famous, or maybe I should say infamous, for one thing. And what they were famous for was idols. Uh, There was temples, gods, and goddesses established throughout the entire city. Uh, First century author uh, Petronius said this, it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And the reason he said that is the population of first century Athens at this point in time with Apostle Paul is roughly around 10,000 people, pretty good sized city. There was over 30,000 idols of gods and goddesses and statues and temples uh, uh, constructed in the city of Athens. And so that's why they said it is so much easier to find an idol, a little statue Uh, set up to these gods and goddesses. So they were very well known, famous for their uh, idols and idol worship. Um, Now, you don't have to raise your hand on this question, but are you familiar with me time? Uh, Me time is the time where you're just like, you know, it's been a long day, it's been a long week, it's been a long month, it's been a long life. I just need some me time, I just need some time where I can just be with me and me only. No one touching me, no one grabbing me, no one asking me for anything, no demands on me. I can just physically, emotionally, spiritually relate. I can just check out. I just need to have some me time. Now, I'm not making a statement of me time is, is good or bad, but as I considered in our culture, I hear that a lot. I just need some me time. One of the things that amazes me about the Apostle Paul is that when he lands in Athens, he's by himself, doesn't know anyone in the city, and no one in the city knows him. And you consider the long trip, you consider his imprisonment, his beatings, and you consider the mobs that try to attack him. This would be a perfect time for some Paul time. This would be a perfect time for Paul just to be like, man, no one knows me. I can just completely check out it's going to take at least two to four weeks for Timothy and Silas to get 200 miles to where I am. So what a what a gift! I can just be by myself and not do anything. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't check out to say Paul time. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this definition of character, and I agree with this definition. It's it's character is defined by who you are when no one is watching. I agree with that definition, but I wanted to add something new to that definition in light of what I just learned in Acts 17, and it would be this. Your character, who you are, will be revealed most clearly when you are around people who don't know who you are. I agree that who you are, uh, your character will show up just when you're alone, and no one's watching, no one's looking, no one's paying attention. That's a great marker, but as I consider the Apostle Paul, his character Man, it just came through in a city and a town with people that have no idea who he is. It is the perfect moment for him to completely check out, ignore, avoid, not even talk to people, and just rest, just do whatever Paul time would actually look like. If you want to catch a glimpse of what your true character looks like, just consider who you are when you're around people you'll never have to see again. This uh, past week, um, uh, a week ago, Saturday, uh, I was at BJ's, uh, and this uh, past Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago, uh, we had this incredible event, um, a little over 200 uh, young kids uh, in here, Uh, it was an amazing frozen adventure that we set up for the kids and their parents, and uh, about 400 people. There was so much that went into that week leading up to it. So on Saturday, I've got so many different things running and racing through my mind of we've got to get this done, we've got to finish this, and you know people are coming, like we've got to get things going. And uh, it was not too late in the morning, but around 10 in the morning, I realized we didn't have any propane at the church, and we're about to feed 400 people with grills, so we've got to go get some propane. And so I ran to BJ's real quick, and again... If character, a, a helpful definer of what character is, is what you're like when you're around people that you might not ever have to see again. A lot of my character came out at BJ's last Saturday. I pulled up uh, next to uh, the propane tank. As soon as I got out of the car, the guy uh, was relatively nice, but he's like, You can't park there, you're too close, you've got to move your car. And so I'm like, man, I'm in a hurry. Fine, I'll go move the car. Uh, And in my mind, it's easier uh, to just leave the car running. I came back, and he's like, "Uh, I'm sorry, but you also got to turn your car off. And I'm like, man, my car's like 100 feet beyond. Like, what could possibly... Man, it's state law that you got to do this. And I'm like, all right, go back turn my car off. So I'm already not in a great place. And. The guy just is talking to me and talking to me and is asking me questions about propane and all these things. And in this moment, I just said, listen, I just need to get my propane tank filled and I need to go. And I said it as sharp and as clear and as direct as that. And the guy just looked at me straight-faced, said, man, I'm sorry, I was just trying to make friendly conversation with you. And my heart, it just dropped and I was like, man, what a jerk you just were. And the guy filled the tank for me. I got in the car. And uh, as soon as I got in the car, uh, God was like, really? Really, that's, who you, that's, that's how you're going to leave this? Get your butt out of your car and go in and apologize to this guy. And I was like, well, great. Now I just, I've already looked like an idiot. Now I'm just going to look like a fool. And so I had that moment of wrestling with God for a few seconds. And, uh, and I went in. And I went back to the counter, and I was like, listen, I just want to apologize. I was really short, and I was really rude with you, and I just wanted to ask you to forgive me. And the guy looked at me with the craziest look. And it wasn't like he had this category of, like, yes, I believe in forgiveness, so you are forgiven. Go on your way. (laughs) It was, honestly, the look on his face, I, I won't forget, because he just looked at me and said, hey, thanks for that. And that was it. But what was revealed to me in that moment is I've got a long way to go in having a character that is consistent and reflects who Jesus is. And one of the things that inspires me, amazes me about the Apostle Paul is when he was in a city where no one knew him and he didn't know anyone. He loved the people and he engaged the people. And the two things that I just wanted to share with you, hopefully briefly this morning, is What does it look like? If you say that the gospel is a reasonable gospel, how might it show up in actually how you live and how you engage the world around you? And the first one that I would share with you is simply this, Christ-like character at all times, in all places, with all people. Christ-like character at all times, in all places, with all people. Uh, Acts 16, or Acts 17, verse 16 through 18 says this While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily to the public square to all who happened to be there. I love how Luke makes clear that the Apostle Paul was deeply troubled when he was walking through the city, and he was deeply troubled by what he saw. 10,000 men and women, and 30,000 idols and statues to different gods and different goddesses. So he's saddened, he's angered by what he saw, this, these idols everywhere, but he's deeply saddened by the people who were worshiping man-made things. And Paul, in this moment, he could have done one of three things. He could have easily just said, hey, to each their own it's just Athens. That's the way they roll in Athens. So what, what, what am I going to do? And just said, hey, that's, that's who these people are, and that's just what they do, and I have nothing to say into that. He could have said, these people are just really jacked up. They are too, too far gone for me to say anything to them. I mean, they've got 30,000 different Little gods and goddesses. Like they are just messed up in the mind and heart. He could have just said, These people, they don't even deserve to know about God. They are bending their knee to these little man made fake statue figurines of gods and goddesses. He could have easily declared, Not even worthy to hear about who God is and what God is like. And I wrote it down in my journal like this As you grow in Christ like character, you'll see that Jesus will begin to reshape what you love to what he loves. And he loves all people. Paul had Christ-like character, and I can say that with confidence because as he was in the city, he didn't have any of those reactions to the people. He knew that because Jesus loved every single man and woman and child in the city of Athens, and his character was was being formed and shaped to look like Christ, what was happening to Paul is he was beginning and growing and loving what Jesus loved, and Jesus loves all people. And so he began to reason with them in hopes to reach them. And I think this is a huge challenge for me, and it's a challenge for all of us. As I am growing as a Christian, a follower of Christ, am I actually growing more loving? because I was not loving last week in BJ's. And I'm sad that that happened, but I'm thankful because God reminded me, Michael, you got so far to go on this journey. But what I'm asking God to do in my heart is to shape in me a heart that would reflect what Christ's heart is for the world around me. That I would look at every man, every woman, every child, just every person through the lens and through the heart and through the mind that God loves them all. God, I want to love all people like you love all people. Now, it was his custom that he would first go to the synagogue and reason with people. But as the story goes on, we learn that he went from the synagogue to the the marketplace. And he began just teaching and speaking openly and freely about who Jesus is. I don't think this will come as a shock to any of you, but uh, not everyone you know is going to be all that excited to hear about God. Okay? It says this in Acts 17, verse 18. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean uh, and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Okay? So not everyone that you seek to love is going to receive the love that you have to give. And not everyone that you seek to talk about who God is and what God is like is actually going to be interested in hearing what you have to say. You might get called a name like a babbler. You might be called a fool, an idiot for believing and speaking to such things. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is regardless of their response or the reaction to him and the message that he was proclaiming, it did not prohibit him from still loving them. Even if they didn't love him, it didn't stop him from loving them. And the second thing that I would share with you the first is Christ like character at all times and all places with all people uh, would simply be this. We tell those that don't know about God what God is really like. I mentioned to you before that as you grow in Christ like character, you're going to start to have desires. That reflect what God's desires are. You're going to begin to love what he loves. And I would also tell you that you will be compelled to talk about him to those that don't know him. And I think this is where it gets very frightening for most people is, great, is this the part of the message where you're going to tell me I need to talk to people about Jesus? You're going to need, I need to talk to more people about who God is and what God is like. And let me just be honest with you, it's not an easy thing. It's an awkward thing. Sometimes it can be a painful thing, Uh, talking to people about your faith, talking to people about what you believe, uh, about who Jesus is and who God is and and what God is like. For some, it's just purely a fear thing. You just, it's, I feel like an idiot. I just feel so silly talking about these things. So therefore, I don't want to feel silly. I don't want to be rejected. So I just, I don't say anything. Whereas for others, it's more of, I honestly just don't know what to say. I'm actually okay engaging people. I'm just so scared that I'm going to say the wrong thing or say something that will actually, I don't know, just not be helpful and might even be hurtful to them. Uh, Where others, you just honestly might say, you know what, Michael, my faith is my faith. My faith is just for me. Like it's me and God. It's me and Jesus. And if someone else wants to come know, then they can come ask me, but I will not talk to anyone because it's just a me and a God thing. One of the things that, uh, and by the way, I, I, I hope I can make this clear. Uh, for me personally, talking about my faith, it's not an easy thing. It can be awkward for me. When I try to bring things up in conversation, I get that weird thing in my throat. My face gets a little red, get a little sweaty. Like, it's hard. I get it. But one of the things that God used in my life to change how I understand and why I actually enjoy talking to people about God who don't know God, Um, it's going to be a verse that I think all of us would know. Even if you've never been to church before, I'm going to guess that you've heard of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I actually believe that verse. I'm actually convinced that God really loves the world. And when we're talking about the world, we're not just talking about a cosmic universe. We're talking about people. I really actually believe, I am convinced that God loves every single person on this planet. And I'm equally convinced that there are many men and women in my immediate circle who don't believe that who actually have ideas and understandings about God, that God does not care about them, that God is indifferent towards them. So one of the things that has radically changed my heart towards talking about God is, I know that God loves people. And I desperately want people in my life to know that they are greatly loved by God. One of the things that I and that we can learn from the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 is how do we begin to do that? How do we begin to actually share with people what we know with what, and what we believe and just where they are? Uh, and by the way, this is more of a side note that I just encourage you with. Uh, for those that just might be intimidated, scared, frightful of talking about God with friends in your life, with family in your life, neighbors, coworkers, I say this in all sincerity, there is nothing more enjoyable to me than that moment when someone, the light bulb goes on in their heart, the light bulb goes on in their heart, in their mind, and they're like, wait a minute, are you for real? God knows me, he loves me, not because of what I've done or haven't, like there's nothing more rewarding and enjoyable than seeing a heart just get it and a mind get it. And for Paul, he got to see this a lot. And again, in Acts 17, one of the things that Paul teaches us, and I want to finish with these things, is the idea of he built bridges between where people were and where God was. Because I, I, again, I think if, if this is a bit of a divide here, and I'm here, and my heart is, I'm growing in Christ-like love for people. And I generally, I want to be able to tell my wife, my sons, my daughters, my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends about who God is. But I just don't know how to make the connection. I don't know what bridge to walk over to to make sense of it all, so to speak. Um, Paul does this really well for us and models for us in Acts 17 what this would actually look like. Read verse 19 through 21. Then they took him to the high council. Uh, The high council, another uh, word for that is the Areopagus of the city. And come, tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. And then verse 21, it should be explained, this is Luke's commentary, it should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul is being brought before these men and women, uh, this, this high council called the Areopagus. And just so you know what the Areopagus was, it was a council of about 30 to 40 men. And they were known as the philosophers uh, that were entrusted with the responsibility of guarding the gate, so to speak, of Athenian philosophy. And so they would invite, Plato stood before this council, Aristotle stood before this council, Socrates stood before this council. Paul is now standing in the same place as all of these men before him, And they were going to judge whether or not what he had to share with them was a philosophy that they would accept or reject. But the first thing, and here's a modern-day comparison to what this city council, Arapagus, would look like, uh, would be uh, a TV talk show. Okay? Uh, You can check my math later, but there's over 350 talk shows on cable, on TV, network television right now. Uh, so I'm like, wow, our culture is not much different than Athenian culture. We are obsessed with talk show environments where there's either a man or a woman, uh, an Oprah, an Ellen, or somebody else, or just a panel of men and women who like to sit around and interview other people of, well, what do you have to say? What do you believe? What do you know? What's your experience? What do you have for us? And then they serve as kind of the judge of, well, that's silly. That's ridiculous. And we as a culture, love to listen into these different talk shows. And so the, the city council, the Arapagus, the way it was set up is Paul was not just addressing 30 to 40 men and uh, 30, 40, 30 to 40 men. Uh, the way the, 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 the actual physical layout is uh, it was called Mars Hill. Okay? And this, this council, this Areopagus, met up on top of an elevated rock, as it were, carved out rock, and there would be hundreds of people that would gather around where the philosophers and the Apostle Paul would be, and, and these men and women would be listening to what was being said. So all of this to say, after Paul spent some time in Athens observing Athens, he makes a bridge from where he is to where the people are. And he says this in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Do you see the bridge that he just built, the connection that of where he was to where his audience was? I notice that you are very spiritual people. I notice that you pay attention. You're very religious uh, as it were. And now he's got them listening. Well, he's observed these things. And he, he even says, I've noticed that you have an altar that even has an inscription to an unknown God. And Paul's next thing that Paul will say is, in verse 23, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He has such a nice connection, a bridge, as it were, from where he was to where they are, to now he's able to tell them about who God is. So a question for me would be, what might it look like for us? Uh, if you're going to walk, uh, if you're going to talk with someone about God, who he is, what he's like, How do you establish that common ground? What does that practically look like for you and for me? Uh, One day, uh, hopefully sooner than later, you're going to meet my friend Matt. And I've known Matt for about the past year and a half. uh, And he is one of the assistant store managers at BJ's. Uh, And I've been talking and spending time with Matt every time I go into BJ's. I try to even work it out when I know he's working just just so I can talk with him and see how he's doing. And I have told him so much about you, and I'm excited for the day that Matt will come into Genesis and meet the community that I've been bragging him out for the past 18 months. My initial connection with Matt, the initial bridge, I didn't just go up to him and be like, hey, assistant manager, would you like to come to Genesis and meet all these amazing people and hear about God? That wasn't, he would have been like, what? My initial connection was I noticed he had a tattoo, and so I just simply said to him, hey, what is the, what's the story behind that tattoo? And he kind of looked at me and he was like, huh. Well, And he was, anyone who has a tattoo on their body generally is pretty excited about their tattoos and they don't mind talking about their tattoos. And so he told me a little bit about the story and he had some uh, names even written. I'm like, well, who are these people? And over the past 18 months, every time I go in, he's like, Michael, I got another tattoo. Let me show you. Now, anyone who has a tattoo and you ask them about their tattoo you know what they generally ask you? Hey, do you have any tattoos? And I was like, hey, actually I do. When I was 18, I got a tattoo of an ichthus. He's like, what the heck is an ichthus? And I was like, it's a fish. Most people who have tattoos don't really consider my tattoo a real tattoo because it's like a little baby fish. (laughs) But he was like, why did you do that? I was like, well, this is what ichthus means. And I was able to walk through, well, why did you put that on your ankle? I was like, well, Matt, I used to be a swimmer. And when I was 18, I really just wanted a way for people to know that I was a Christian. And I thought that would be a pretty clever way. And he was like, so you just, it's on your ankle. I was like, man, it's right there. And there was our immediate connection. Now, again, my suggestion is not, well, I guess I have to go get tattoos to connect with tattoo people. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I paid attention to something that I noticed was important to him. The guy had a sleeve on his arm. Clearly, he was into tattooing. Clearly, that's something that mattered was a value that he cared about. So you might not have that tattoo bridge to walk over, and that's fine, but it's learning to look at the people in your life and say, I'm I'm asking you questions about what you care about, what you value, what matters to you, and you begin asking those questions. You see how they spend their time and where they spend their time. If you have a friend who just goes to movies all the time, well, there's your bridge. Well, what are some movies you've seen recently? Why do you love stories? What's the plot line? Who are the main characters? Is there a redemptive narrative? And you're able to share with them, I also love stories, and I have a story that's changed me. Mark Driscoll said it really well uh, in his uh, book, uh, Reformation uh, Gospel. He said, The better we understand people the better prepared will be to reach people so that God can transform how people think, what they value, and how they experience life. The radical reformation. Uh, and it's just a very simple thing that he said. Just pay attention to what people talk about, what they care about, and what they value. And that's what Paul did. He built a bridge with the Athenians of, I see you're spiritual, and I see you worship a God that has unknown God. Well, I want to tell you about the God that I know, this God that I speak to you of. And I'm going to share this very quickly, uh, but your next point, if you do build a bridge, well, what do you say? What, what do you talk to people about? And what I learned about what Paul did is he not only built a bridge, but he connected with them w- where they were. And I'm just going to fly through these. I encourage you to write these down and, and go back later and look at Acts 17, but he shared with the Athenians uh, five things about who God is and what God is like. And the first thing is this. He said, God is knowable. Again, verse 23, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. What Paul was telling him, guys, there's no guesswork. God has revealed himself to us. You can know who God is. You can know what God is like. You can know what God cares about. You can know what God values. You can know how to relate with God, understand God, and connect with God. Colossians 1.15, write this verse down. It's it's powerful. Christ is a visible image of the invisible God. What Paul was able to do is tell them, you're worshiping these things that you do not know, but I want you to know you can know God because God is knowable. He's revealed himself to us. The second thing I see that Paul, That Paul does, teaches them about who God is. He said, God is creator. God is creator. He is the God who made, this is verse 24 and 5, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. Can you imagine if you were a person who was so confused about which idol, which statue, which god, which goddess to bow down to, what their need was, what you needed to do to appease them and not anger them. And you hear Paul now telling you, but God's not like that. You don't create God. God created you. Why? Because God is creator of all things, the world and everything in it. Now, if you're coming from this culture of 30,000 different gods and goddesses, This is mind blowing for what they're hearing. You put your gods and goddesses in these little temples and these little tent coverings. God doesn't need anything. He's God. You can't make him, he's made you. And when you start to understand God as creator, you start to make another connection. Gosh, if God is creator and he created me, then I'm not an accident, I'm not here randomly. I'm not just happenstance that I just showed up. And there's a lot of people in our day and age who believe that they're at best, their life is at best just random. And when I tell people, no, God is creator, that means you have purpose, you have meaning, you have worth, you have value, you have dignity and significance. Why? Because you have a creator and you were created to know your creator, to walk with your creator and to love your creator and to be loved by your creator. Third thing, God is generous. A few verses, Acts 17, verse 25, and then 28, 29. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, again, he's another bridge. I know what your philosophers, what your poets, what your artists say and think, and he quotes them. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. These gods and goddesses and statues and stones that they worshiped, they didn't do anything for these people. But Paul says, no, God is generous. He gives life and breath, and he satisfies every need. Can you imagine what the people are hearing? Wow, I didn't know God satisfies. I didn't know God completes. Now, my question on this one would just be, are you convinced that everything you need for life, for your life, will be found in a relationship with God? Are you convinced of that? That everything you need for life, your existence, everything is wrapped up and found in your relationship with God? Because if you're not convinced of that, when we doubt or disbelieve that to be true, we will begin seeking and searching for it in other places and other people. And this is the essence of idolatry, and this is what the Athenians had given themselves over. Idolatry, looking to something created to do for you only what God can. Richard Key said it very well um, in a great book, uh, No God-like uh, no God uh, I don't have it written down, but an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. An idol can be physical, be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. Anything can substitute for God. No God, but God. So if we're not convinced that in God and God alone is everything that we need. And that doesn't mean life is easy. That just means everything that I need for life, meaning peace, purpose, rest, comfort, hope, joy. That all comes not from a job, a career, a finance, a financial statement, uh, letters behind your name, a marriage, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, If you're not convinced that in life, in in God is life, then you'll create idols like these Athenians did. And I wanted to challenge us with this. We were created to worship, and even if people in here, in our culture, choose not to worship, they're still going to worship. I like how G.K. Chesterton said, cease to worship God. We do not worship nothing. We worship anything. So someone might say, well, I'm not interested in worshiping God, and I would just say, well, okay, but you're still going to be a worshiper. It's just a question of what you're going to worship, and is it really worthy of giving yourself to? Again, you're connecting with people on, you've built that bridge. The last thing that I'd share with you uh, is this. Uh, again, the first one, he's noble, he's creator, he's generous, um, or two more, I'm sorry. He is sovereign, Okay. Paul made very clear that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things, verse 26 and 7. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand uh, when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. This was so contrary to how they understood God. Because they had a goddess who was in charge of this territory. They had a God who was in charge of this. They had a God who was in charge of the stars and the moon and the sun and the sea and the waves. And the ant- They had gods for everything. But Paul says, no, God is sovereign over all things. He is in control of absolutely everything in this world and everything in your world. One of the things I wrote down in my journal was this. If God is sovereign, meaning he's in control of all things, that means he is using all things in our lives to draw us and those around us towards him. Everything in your life is being used by God to bring you to God. And everything that is happening in your life, good, bad, hard, painful, joyful, everything, because God is sovereign, is being used by God to draw other people who don't know God closer to him. Matt Chandler said it very well. He said this, the unique, place, uh, the unique place God places us in transforms everything we do. The place we live, work, or the activities we're involved with become less about us and more about God. He has uniquely designed us, uniquely wired us, uniquely placed us so that men and women would seek him and find him. He is not far from any of us because he has put us in their life. You know what? God is not far from your next door neighbor. Do you know why? Well, because you live next to them. God is not far from your coworker. Do you know why? Well, because you're working with them. God is not far or absent from your family. Do you know why? Because you're in it. If you understand God as sovereign, you can look at everything that is happening in your life and say, God's using this to show me him because he's near, he's not far off, and he's using this to use me to draw other people closer to him. Last one is this, God is just. Verse 30 and 31 say this, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day, for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he approved uh, and proved to everyone uh, who this is by raising him from the dead. I love how Paul finishes his message to the Athenians, to the Areopagus, the, the city council, to these philosophers by reminding them: you need to know that God is just. God is a just God. Something they struggle with, something we struggle with, is if God is God and He's good and He's just. Why on earth is there so much evil and wickedness in the world? Like, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God do something? And Paul's message to the the Athenians and the message to us as well is, God is just, and there will be a day where you and I will have to stand before a holy and a righteous judge and give an account for our lives. Every single one of us will have to stand before God. But what Paul does, he reminds people is that day, he says, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him because those who turn to him, they receive mercy. Because God, being generous, being loving, being caring, being just righteous said, I will pay the penalty for the sins of the world by sending my son. And if you would but believe in him, my justice is satisfied completely in Christ, and you will receive mercy. And so he calls the Athenians and says, Today's a day to repent, to turn from your ways and turn toward God. Paul is uh, inspiring. He's inspiring in so many ways, but as I've sat with Acts 17 these past few weeks, uh, I just am so reminded that God used him and he wants to use me and he wants to use you to reach people who don't know who God is and what God is like. Allow Christ's character to be formed in you. So you're not getting more unloving, more unkind, more ungracious, more short and stern and mean and cruel to people You're beginning to actually have a heart that reflects the heart of Christ, that you love all people. And because you love him, you love telling other people about him and who he is.